To ship, of course. It's time again for the Ship Show, where we talk build, engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I am your host, as always, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who's with me tonight for the last of the 30, episode 39? This is uh, Seth at ShoePlus on Twitter. This is EJ at East Armella on Twitter. This is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter. How is everybody doing? Awesome. Good. Good. Uh, we're just going to launch right into news and views tonight. we got a lot to talk about uh, this episode. So uh, first up, uh, news this week that uh, Google Cloud was reducing prices on their offerings. Of course, guess who followed immediately right after? <laughs> Microsoft Azure. Uh, well, no, that's funny. I haven't heard an announcement from them, but them and like DigitalOcean, some of these other big cloud providers, I'd be curious if they're kind of like, oh, no, or, or if they're like, we can... They we were, can... Yeah, there were some really interesting conversations around this. Um, I was watching a lot of people uh, talk about how they've basically been waiting for Google to do this better than everyone else because Google's been doing this internally um, right. with, their own, with their own application stacks. And so I think when it was uh, Andrew Clay Schaefer and some other folks were having kind of a really cool, like, a, like you could have storified the, the Twitter discussion where they were kind of like, they were just waiting for Google to turn this, unleash this publicly because it's very clear if you've seen any like Jeff Dean's talks or anything like that, they're very good good at this. Mm-hmm. Um, about managing resources and scalability and all this, and I, I mean, it's 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 interesting because I think the only real competition that Netflix has truly had is now present. And by Google finally lowering the prices at this point, it's basically we're Amazon. Or oh, sorry, sorry, did I say? Yeah, yeah sorry, I'm an Amazon. Yeah, you said Netflix. Um, because yeah. well, no, when you said that, I thought it was like I wonder if this means like Netflix might consider like oh yeah Google instead if it would be that much cheaper. Oh yeah, I just I totally had a brain fire. Yeah, I meant, I, meant, <laughs> I, totally, meant, I totally meant Amazon. And but as you, they're the only two people. You know, these those are the, I feel like Google's the only one who can really compete and potentially out-iterate Amazon in this space, because Amazon's been kind of de facto king for as long as we've been around in this kind of computing environment, this cloud computing stuff. So yeah. I'm kind of excited just, just because it's competition and it's it makes for more fun things. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting, like, new people in the space, DigitalOcean and stuff, that this makes it difficult for them to sort of uh, catch up, I think, from the standpoint of if you're building that business, you're trying to figure all this stuff out to build the business, whereas if you've got established customers that are plugged into all your APIs, you can actually focus a lot on how can we save electricity or save memory or little tweaks that only give you, you know, one or two percent efficiency, but across all of your data centers, that allows you to do price undercuts that actually are notable. Yeah, I, if you look at, I, I'll plug Jeff Dean's, uh, he's given this a few times, but he basically talks about how they're shaving those efficiencies in like when they're doing their kind of a service-oriented architecture. And when you're Google, a 2% savings is is huge. Like right. it's, it's not, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a huge amount of money and resources. And so to see how good they are at it internally and then see this reflected externally, I think is going to be kind of, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, and yeah. to see how, if they can, because they, they do have the power to undercut. They've got just as much, I mean, I would argue just as much money as Amazon does. I would Go love ahead. to see them stop stop leg wrestling over price and start, you know, wrestling over uh, CPU power or like 
even even technology. Uh, so so right now you can create an elastic load balancer. You can create a, lo- a load balancer in uh, Google App Engine, but there's no security groups. Right? Like, can we let's see let's see tools come out and and they can just keep getting cheaper. It's just it's well, soon we, not going to yeah. be the selling. It's not going to be the selling price anymore. Like Amazon, I feel like is in another league with regard to what they've provided. Price-wise, yeah, sure. You look at the one-year comparison, you're not saving any money. You look at the three-year reserved instance prices, they're slaughtering Google still. Like Google yeah, still so has a lot, a long way to go. They are. Uh, so I'd argue that Google's actually competing on is actually is competing on CPU as well as network. Um, something that Google has a lot of is fiber, and that's something that can make them a very, very compelling uh, story, especially for when I've been looking at them. If Google's like backend networks can outperform Amazon's, that's huge wins for uh, if you're running you know, a database, for, for example. That actually brings a lot of, uh, a lot of win uh, over Amazon, and so that's why I think I, I'm, I'm kind of watching it uh, as well as playing with it myself just because I think there is some... I think Google is bringing new things to the table on performance fronts. So well, I, I, that's that's where I'm excited to, to it, see. It's certainly clear that there's going to be competition in the space. It's kind of what happens when clouds fight. Do we get thunderstorms? <laughs> <laughs> it'll be interesting to see the competition in the space, and and obviously it's not going away. So uh, it'll be be interesting to see how they all kind of. Re- react to this. We've already seen Amazon. We'll wonder if we'll see some others in the next coming days. We're the ones who are going <laughs> to win during these these battles, right? Hopefully, yeah. Uh, next up for people who love historical stuff, Microsoft made the source code for MS-DOS uh, 1.0, I think, and the first version of Microsoft Word available to the Computing History Museum. Plug for the Computing History Museum. It's down uh, in Mountain View, and if you've never gone, you should definitely go. It's actually a very fun uh, museum, especially for uh, geeks and nerds and people that enjoy that kind of stuff. Some interesting details about it. 300 kilobytes was MS-DOS. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fit that in in uh, your, your 8086. So oh. yeah, it's it's interesting. Like if you look at it, it's the a actual source code. It's a bunch of there's there's a dot HLP file. Woo! No, it's mostly assembler. A few text files and then time.asm and t data and oh my god. <laughs> this is t data and oh my god. Yeah, dot asm. Yeah, this is kind <laughs> of amazing. Sorry. Okay, a little bit of fanboying there. I, I like I I don't really. Uh, understand all of this stuff. <laughs> I love that. No, no. I don't really understand all well, no, no, no. of this stuff. It's, it, here's the thing. Like, we never had to learn, like, large application assembly. Like, we, I learned assembler, but we didn't have to learn big application and then write some huge thing in assembler. And so whenever I see stuff like this, it's like those nostalgic old phones that, you, that have the bell ringer and, like, are hefty and you can, like, smash them against the walls and if they punch holes in walls. Like, those old bell phones, there's just something nice about them. And so I like looking at stuff like that. Anyway, we'll put a link to the source code in uh, in the show notes. They're very satisfying to hang up violently. Is what yes, yes, that too. Yeah. And last up uh, this evening, we have a report that Austin is number one for tech salaries if you take into account the cost of living. We thought we'd bring this up because, sadly, uh, you just left. I did, Seth, but and but this I've doesn't apply to you anymore. Yeah, I've always I've always praised. I mean, it's it, people have like for a while have asked like why Austin, and especially like there are San Francisco companies moving out to Austin. There, I mean, a lot of the there's been a a pull from the West Coast, which has been really interesting to watch over the past I guess twelve years that I lived in Austin, and the tech community has just grown and grown. And part of the reason is it's crazy cheap. I mean, I having just moved to Seattle, I'm realizing that. 
oh god, cost of living is is you know is I think it's twenty percent higher um, at least. Yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of taking that in because in Austin, you know, you can you can live like you know I want to say a king, but you can, you can live very well on what would be considered a modest salary, say out in San Francisco. Like so, a salary of like sixty thousand dollars will get you nowhere in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> in the tech space, at least that's like I I've never heard of any like that's that would be a crazy lowball. Whereas in Austin, sixty thousand dollars you can have like a three bedroom house just outside the city, you know, pay like under a thousand dollars a month rent or mortgage payment. Like you can, I mean, maybe not that. You can make that work. You can make, yeah, you can make it work a lot easier and it's cost of living out there is great. There's no state income tax. There are are a huge amount of benefits. So if you're looking for a cheap place to live and you're willing to put up the summer heat, Austin is a great place. (laughs) Well, so the top five cities, uh, number two is interesting, Atlanta was right ATL, below Austin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Denver Boulder, uh, they have a burgeoning tech sector there. I, I grew up in uh, Colorado, so that's nice to see maybe if I ever move back. Boulder very specifically has been even more so than I think Denver. Um, there are a lot of companies out of there that I've just noticed like spring up, and they've got a very vibrant kind of downtown tech scene now that they didn't have a few years ago. Yeah, you see a lot in, uh, I think it's Littleton too, because there's uh, government, and also a little in Colorado Springs because it's of the government stuff there, the Air Force Academy. Academy and things like that. Uh, number four, Boston. Number five, Silicon Valley. Uh, and the worst, uh, hey, at least we're not number one or the worst in this uh, survey, New York. So interesting, interesting to Wait, look at. Why is, why is LA on that list? <laughs> it's weird, right? Like, But there is a pretty big tech hub in LA. Yeah, there's, mm-hmm. there's a tech hub there. Yeah. Huh. Last time tonight, we wanted to mention we've been working with the fine folks over at Chef to offer uh, something special. So, uh, Seth, want to walk us through that? Yeah. So we're, we're good friends with all the, the folks at Chef, formerly OpsCode, and we have a free ticket that we'd like to give away to a member of an underrepresented group. So if you could send us, Paul's going to link in the show notes an email address that we're going to create, a nice little alias. Send us your submissions, basically to try and help get more diversity at ChefComp. I've, I've been really pleased, you know, having gone to ChefCon since it's been started, it's been a very diverse crowd, and they've been very committed to making sure that their speaker lineup is diverse, and we're going to try and help with the audience side. So send us why you'd like to go, and uh, we can help out uh, with uh, lodging and travel as well as it makes sense. If you're in the Bay Area, obviously it'll be really easy. Uh, we'll pay April's... you for your BART ticket. Yeah, exactly. So uh, uh, ChefCon will be running uh, April 16th and 17th of this year, um, so if you'd like to go, and you're a member of an un- underrepresented group, just let us know, and uh, we might be able to help you out. Yeah, so that address will be diverse-chefconf2014. Again, we'll put that little direct link to it in the show notes. Uh, you need to get us submissions because ChefConf is coming up by 11.59 Pacific time on Saturday, April 5th. Get those submissions about why you would like to go to ChefConf and then we will get those reviewed and get ready for ChefConf. And speaking of getting ready for ChefConf, if you have yet to buy your tickets but you're planning on going to ChefConf, Nathan Harvey over at Chef has given uh, Ship Show listeners a 15% discount code. We'll put a link to that uh, where you can get your tickets with that discount code in the show notes. So check that out if you're planning on going to ChefConf and don't have your tickets yet. You should definitely hop on that and get ready to hang out with Chef and the Ship Show crew at ChefConf 2014. Next up, we're going to be talking Docker and puppet chef and does that make sense kind of a weird question to ask but uh we're going to talk about it next up on the ship show all right welcome back to the ship show so a lot of times when setting up our images and our infrastructure it's we deal with a cornucopia of tools 
Docker, Packer, Vagrant, Chef, Puppet, Ansible, Saltstack, Rendek. I could go on and on. But tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the combination of those tools and uh, how we kind of bring those images up. Now, this uh, conversation was prompted by a tweet by Atlassian's James Dumay. A lot of you may remember him. Uh, he joined us for episode 31 last year, and he's joining the panel again this evening. Welcome back to the Ship Show, James. Hey, thanks for having me back. So your tweet was uh, having an argument with someone who thinks Docker can replace Chef and Puppet. I believe they are at least complementary. I think most people know about Puppet and Chef. So let's start by talking a little bit about Docker and what it does and how it works. Uh, so Docker is really nothing new. Uh, I get well, it is new, <laughs> but um, I guess it, it's it, in terms of virtualization technology itself, it's it's not particularly new. Uh, Docker is a Linux containers based. I guess it's like an automation tool, so you can like build virtual machine containers. You know, put stuff in there like services and dependencies to run those services. Package them up on a file and then like have sort of true portability between you know uh, different servers and different cloud services. So it's it's built on top of basically Linux containers, which have been around for a number of years now, and and they're kind of like Solaris zones if you remember that technology. They're basically a way to do virtualization without actually running a hypervisor or something yeah, like yeah, VMware. Yeah, yeah. The technology came from uh, OpenVZ, which was like an earlier kind of containers, like uh, Solaris Jails solution right. for Linux. And then uh, they tried to get that merged into the kernel at one point. The kernel developers were like, I don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> uh, and then they started working on a solution for like a real solution that would go into the kernel, and that became Linux containers. So I saw a demo. Uh, James Turnbull did a demo... Uh, at Mountain West DevOps uh, of Docker, uh, and he's actually working on a, I guess, a Docker book. But what I thought was interesting, there are a couple things that I thought were very interesting about how they work. Is it, basically, he he gave the example of like the the shipping containers that you can kind of layer things on top of each other, like the big shipping containers that they send across the oceans. Mm. Uh, and and what I thought was interesting about it is. You would basically, like he was saying, as you got these layers, there's like the Apache layer, and then there's like the layer that has maybe Rails or, or that environment in there. And and then he actually had a layer that had his application code, and he, he made a change to a file, and then he did this deployment, and I guess there's a... Does anyone know that? I, I've forgotten what that's called. You can like you basically do a Docker push. It, it had very sort of Git-esque commands, which I doubt is a mistake, and publish your little kind of Docker package thing to a Docker share or something. Does anyone remember what that's called? It's called the Docker index. Yeah, yeah. and then and then it basically does fancy schmancy diffing so that the changes are very small, and so you can get them and you know can distribute them to the team or production or whatever. But I, what I guess I thought was interesting was that last step. That was part of the Docker too. Like the code change was actually part of the Docker container or whatever. So I guess it, how it's different from you know how how we've been using Puppet and Chef and and other similar kind of config management tools in the past is that really instead of thinking about the the way that you deploy your app as well, 
you know, I have some configuration management, I have a VM, or I have like, a, you know, something running in the cloud, and I want to apply that config to the virtual machine periodically, then deploy my app on top of that, and you might use something like Fab, I think is from LinkedIn, or, or something like that to actually deploy your app code. You think about the whole virtual machine, the whole container as your application, as your deployable artifact. So it's a bit of a, a departure from the way that we've been thinking about structuring deployment tools, that you have config management, then you have some kind of orchestration layer that sits on top of that and says, okay, you know, you, before you, you, you even get onto production servers, you package it up, what you want it to look like, and then put that on production as, as one unit. So this sounds a lot, EJ, you, you had mentioned you've been, um, the project you've been working on has, works on kind of baking, you know, this whole idea of baking AMIs, and that's the, the deliverable build artifact. It sounds like this is somewhat similar then. I feel like this is what he's talking about, or, or the way Docker works. And forgive me again. Like, I feel like every time I read the Docker documentation or start watching demos, like I just go numb after just a couple of minutes. But uh, yeah, so that that's that's essentially what we do. But our use case is just for AWS. This sounds like it's for you know VMware or AWS or, or anything. It, it sounds like it's reusable. I just don't understand how to to plug yeah. it. So I was going to say it's it's really it's really portable. I mean the con the, the I think the end result is very similar. You end up deploying essentially images instead of instead of deploying you know an OS and then layering on with your configuration management. You've already you basically have you're you're giving out a a single deliverable uh, artifact. The thing about Docker that I think is different from baking your mice is you can just change the individual layers. And it's that efficiency of, like, as you build this out in layers, you can very efficiently grab new layers, and it just minimizes and the amount of data transmission. Yeah, exactly. So you can, you can create these very flexible containers, and the best part is, since it's tying into LXC, you, you, your host OS is kind of irrelevant, as long as you tap into, like, the Linux kernel. So in, in the same way that, you know, you've, you've got all the niceties of, like, your Solera-style zones, your free BSD jails, you have that with LXC, and then Docker just is another layer on top of that to kind of help orchestrate things. Because when I first so, saw this, I was like, ah, zones. Yeah, you know, I was like, cool, <laughs> Linux got zones. But, but it was more than that. It was a lot more than that. But um, so then it sounds like it's not, like, it, it uh, I mean, EJ, you were mentioning, like, VMware, like, it wouldn't work on Windows, I mean, is that well? Well, no. I mean, yeah. You've got you got. It is all based on like Linux containers, right? Right. It has to be Linux. Yeah. So Linux containers. Um, so your app better better run on on some Linux. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, there's actually something. So uh, a while ago, I uh, yeah. So if you've heard of Docker, it's likely you may have heard of CoreOS, and CoreOS is basically. I hear the, you cursing about it on Twitter. Sometimes. I, I actually like it's the idea. I, I'm, I'm very firmly behind the idea because it's, it's basically the lightest weight Linux distro you can have, and it's basically built just to be used for Docker as well as... Uh, and then they also built out some cool project called etcd, which I think we may have mentioned before, mm-hmm. which is like a distributed kind of configuration, like KV store that can be used for con- tying into, you know, basically coordinating configuration between little, you know, your Docker instances or physical nodes, uh, whatever you want. Um, so it builds all of this in, so it's kind of a, I mean, they say it's for massive server deployments, but it's basically the, the smallest unit of Linux you can have and then build a ton of stuff out on top of it. Mm-hmm. Very, I don't know, it feels very, feels very Unix-y for, for the Linux crowd, I guess. Very very minimal operating system. Um, so it's really really neat because that's they're basically trying to say don't worry about you stop worrying about your host OS. It's less relevant than your Docker containers. Those are the important those are the important things. Yeah. 
every time this every time this tool is is brought up, like I look at it very, and, and as you're discussing it, guys, Seth, everyone, like I'm I'm looking at it very selfishly, like how do I how do I improve my life by adopting this tool? And I st I still don't see it. Like again, when we when we bake, the the deployment unit is that that AMI. We say give me thirty of those AMIs, and it just you know fires up thirty of those instances. Like there's there's no configuration at that point when that when that instance fires. We're not saying like talk to this thing for some other. It's like it's pre-baked. It's ready to go. That's something you can you can take away from it. I think that, that is useful. Is Docker is about containerizing the application itself. So instead of building a whole OS out, you could actually build multiple containers, each containing your app. So you could have one host OS, but this actually protects. The idea is is just like jails. It protects the apps from the other apps. So you could actually have your Postgres server and your whatever your front end is running on the same AMI, but containerized away from each other. And you can, you, you can kind of, you can, you can build these out for whether it's for security or stability. So you could build multiple, have multiple Docker instances running, say, Apache on the same physical host or same virtual host even. And it's, yeah. it, you know, there, I mean, there are a lot of ways this, this, that it can be useful and you can bend it to your will. I, I can't give... For EJ, I don't. I don't think there's a specific way that this would make your life easier. For one thing, I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about in terms of like, how would this work if this was a test environment? And that's where I feel like I have the most to gain. But in mm -hmm. in production, it's like those individual things that you're talking about, like the different Apache instances or Postgres or the different embedded Jetty services or or the the, the Node.js services. Like all these things are separate AMIs that have auto scaling attached to them. And so when I we think get load like these things grow and contract based on that, right? I mean, it's not like really like Docker could be really interesting in in sort of like the the Amazon application because the AMI baking process. I mean, we do this for Elastic Bamboo like every release, and it's it's hard, right? Like sometimes the the Amazon API goes down and it ruins your building process, and that building process could take an hour or so to happen, and then you've got to. You know, See, that's not our, that's not that's not our experience. Our our building process right now is like including the Maven release and everything. That's like five or six minutes, and that's not even using a ch rooted based AMI baking process. And when you start to go to that model, it's like a minute or less. Mm. And we're using so, Chef yeah. Solo for for ninety nine percent of this stuff. So they, in the demo that uh, James Turnbull gave at, at Mountain West DevOps, one of the use cases that he showed and talked a lot about to your question about testing environments, EJ, was he was like, you know, once you make this change, you can then deploy it to other members of the team so that, you know, if I am the developer responsible uh, on my team for some middleware layer and I need to install that or, or update that with a new library, I can do that with a new, I can put that in a new Docker container that's layered up on top of all my others, deploy that, it'll do the diff so it's, it's relatively fast, and then that's available for anyone else on the team to pull back down, or QA to pull back down. And that was the use case that he actually gave about, like, how would you use it in the kind of dev test environment. Um, which I thought... By, what, do you, what do you mean by pull back down? Like, where are so they that, pulling it down to? This is... Well, this is that... James, what was it? The do Docker share? Docker, share. Docker index. index. Yeah, a Docker index, whatever. Yeah. And, and so basically, like I said, it has a kind of a Git-esque uh, workflow where you do this, like, Docker push, and it pushes the container up there, and it has a, a you know, unique identifier, which I think is a checksum of some sort, because um, that's what they look like. And then you can do a Docker pull and get the 
just the patch get, set. Get, yeah. Get, oh, yeah, get well, and it's it's weird. It's because it's this binary patch set, right? It's whatever the the diff is between the the old and that new layer of the stack, and so that's where you would get it and distribute it. What's interesting is that the thing I always run into, like it seems like this is a great use case for certain types of applications because like this is a common problem that you see where like developers have different configurations on their machine and we I, it, like this seems like a problem like duh this is, this is a solved problem and and I hate to say that the more and more I work all over the place like it's totally not and one of the reasons is is that developers don't want to build stuff in virtualization because it's too slow now Linux containers helps with this a little bit but the point is is like they don't want to work in a bunch of containers so I've seen in certain environments certain companies certain cultures that's the way they are set up and designed to work is like everybody you're just building your stuff in a container or a VM or whatever and stuff I mean, like this works that's the value prop that HashiCorp have with Vagrant that you know, you're combining it with your configuration management for production. You can build a local copy of that production environment and do your development, do your testing. And then when you're ready to go, you know, deploying code should be simple because you've been working on the, that same environment, same in inverted commas because it's not quite running on EC2, but, you know, or, or wherever you're targeting. But uh, yeah. that, that's, the, that's the value prop, right? Like you want to. I feel like this is where this is where I'm disconnecting, right? So the way you guys talk, you're talking about a single service or a single server, maybe like front end, middleware, back end kind of thing. When you're talking about dozens of services that make up, you know, your your Netflix or whatever, they have they have hundreds. Like there is absolutely no way you run that stuff locally, all sure. of it, right? And it's not going to work for like all cases. But if you imagine like a you know, a reasonably, like, you know, average kind of software company that has a multi-tiered architecture, they might have, you know, like a billing system they need to bring up, their their SaaS app, their uh, backend, they might have like a bunch of Redis infrastructure, that kind of, you know, like they have a lot of different services that make up that that whole SaaS product, right? The, the really cool thing about Docker in, in that like local testing context is that each one of those services can become a Docker container. And so, like, you have CI systems that are taking the latest code, building a new Docker image, publishing them to the, the index. That goes out to production. And then when a developer needs to start, you know, working on another bit of the system, they go, oh, there's an update for, you know, the, the billing tier of my app. Okay, I'm going to pull that latest one down, right? And you can run that all in on one Linux machine inside individual Docker containers. And those containers are the exact containers you're running in production. So you've got to think of Docker as sort of like, okay, each, each image is my app or a part of my app. They're, they're versioned artifacts. I can share them very easily um, with, with the production ops team. I can share them with other developers. Um, if I've got an experiment running on my local machine and we want to get that running on a demo machine to take to a customer, it's a matter of just sharing that Docker image between the machines and away it goes. All right, how, portability. How, how is this any different than uh, VMware uh, appliances? Don't they have that whole appliance thing where you drop your software onto their appliance and then you can easily, basically, if you're running any kind of VMware, ESXi, infrastructure, or whatever, uh, basically take that image and then load that particular image into, into your VMware infrastructure. Now, granted, you, yeah. you have to be running... VMware, but it, it seems to me like the conceptually they're they're both the same. Yeah, you think, I think the big difference is between the fundamental technology like Linux containers and something like VMware or Zen is that it's not like a full stack virtualization, right? With VMware, you're always running like you're always running an operating system on on, on top of the hypervisor. So for each, I guess each VM, you know, you've got your own Windows, you've got your own Linux, you've got your own whatever. 
than your apps. And that can take up, you know, that can take up uh, a lot of memory, choose CPU cycles that you could probably use for serving your apps. Uh, and with Linux yeah, containers, you've just got it like, you, I guess you've got like a little sandbox version of that Linux operating system, and, and you're not really running anything extra apart from your app. Why is it that I've heard that people are running Docker on top of hypervisors um, like Xen and VMware? You, so you, you still can run them on top of those other services. What it gets you is, is that, again, that containerization and being able to easily pass things around. And not only that, but as we were saying earlier, they're versioned artifacts. You can roll them back. You can roll a Docker image back really quickly. So the, the usefulness and dev cycle is usually the advantage. So again, it's not about... So how do, you, how do you version that particular image? It's the same... If, see, the use case that you're talking about is the same as somebody saying, okay, I have a VMware image and I'm going to clone that image and, and that's how I'm going to roll my stuff out into production. How do you... Well, so, how do you in the example, in the demo that James did, I think the couple of differences is that if you do it with something like VMware, those are basically very heavyweight images. And you see this, I think, with Vagrant as well, where uh, it just takes a long time to copy things, to, to copy the images, to do operations on them. Even, even just to start a Vagrant image or start a, a VMware image, it takes time. It takes a yeah. long time. And so I think the complaint is that in the dev test cycle, in the local developer case, which is what a lot of these tools are optimizing for because that's where that's where you can make a lot of money making developers happy, that's where this approach to doing that is different because it's lighter weight. And a, a couple of interesting statistics, I guess in the demo uh, or in the presentation, James Turnbull was mentioning that, that you can do like he's run on his laptop like 80 Linux container instances where you couldn't even run 80 VMs like that that would not work yeah, at all. Hang on a second, eighty Linux containers doing what? Are they all idling? I mean, if they're all idling, then no, 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 no. They're they're running. Yeah, it's all of... Apache just sitting there quietly. <laughs> right. But, well, yeah, but it does. No, no, no. But it doesn't matter, right? Because the point is, if I have eighty parts of my my application is made up of eighty service components, and I need all of those components running, then yeah, we're not serving thousands of user requests, but we're serving the developer user request in a real environment that replicates that stack. That's the point. And so, so the, what you're telling me is that Docker is really good for things like a PaaS, like a developer sandbox. Yeah, I mean, it can be, yeah. It's, I was going to say it certainly can be. I mean, the other, the other usefulness, I think we were getting into this, especially with Yusuf asking about you know, the, the VMware question. So I, I highly encourage folks to look, if they haven't, uh, Brendan Gregg does a breakdown of performance differences between hypervisor layers and zones, which is actually kind of useful for at least how you can think of when you're using LXC, you're not incurring extra system translation calls. So that's what that, I mean, it's, it does save you a right. lot. You're and not you doing can, the, the binary patching in memory where you're having right. to trap the privileged calls. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And if you look at it, he shows you how many calls. So you're saving yourself first a ton of calls. And the cool thing is you can run different Linux distro layers in LXC. So you could have you know, a bunch of different Docker containers that could be totally different flavors. They could be Ubuntu, CentOS, and everything all running on the same kernel. So you're getting these much more efficient management at the kernel level, and it's 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 built to handle this. So it's it's I mean it's this, it's the same value proposition as zones. It's just with some additional stuff on top of it that makes it really really easy to 
use. Well, as an aside, I'm always amused that basically we had virtualization in the mainframe era, right? And then we brought it to PCs with like VMware because doing dependency tracking and having apps play nicely, that's really, really hard. So it's like, we'll virtualize it. And then it was like, that's too heavyweight. So let's walk it back to what's like the cheapest jail we can put these applications into. Like, you know, that's been a, a lot of time and research spent on that. One thing to your point, Seth, uh, and the question you asked, uh, Yusuf, it's the workflow, too. This ability to be able to, over conference Wi-Fi, push a change in a Docker container, pull it back down, and run it. You know, if you're trying to do that with VMware images, like, you just could not, you couldn't do it. Uh, and so that part was compelling, I think. I was going to say, there's another really compelling... So we were talking, I mean, the original question was, can these can these things live together? It does Docker replace Chef or Puppet? And to, to James, you know, they, they can live peacefully together. I actually use Docker on my, so I have my little Steam box, and it's running, it's, you know, running, I think, Ubuntu 13.10. And what I do is I use it to either Chef, so like Test Kitchen, for example, has, and you can actually tie right into to Docker and LXC. So I can actually spin up, like, six, like, Riot containers, all, you know, so I don't have to spin up six full VMs, and I get six full processes, and it uses, you know, has access to all the memory that my system has just for just for testing, and it's a lot faster than spinning up, it's a lot faster than spinning up Vagrant every time, because um, I, I actually, it's, I mean, it's just off the kernel, so, like, Docker instance creation time is just, is super fast, so there's not as much heavy, it just saves me time testing. I can te- test six, uh, like, especially for a distributed service, I can test that in a matter of minutes instead of, you know, tens of minutes. Mm. So let me, let me ask this, James, because so you were saying you, you were having an argument with someone who thought that Docker could replace Chef Puppet. Can you walk us through what their what their position was? I mean, what 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 would the workflow be or how would you replace those tools sort of in a dev to test to prod workflow? What yeah. was their vision of that world? Okay, yeah. Um, so really the conversation was actually with a sort of C-level uh, individual at Atlassian. And, uh, this <laughs> okay, <laughs> and, now you got to uh, watch what you say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of can't bra- uh, bag on the boss uh, on, a, on a call. But uh, anyway... So we're having this argument about like Docker versus Puppet versus Chef, like what are they used for? Uh, our kind of C-level types here really recognize that you know like Docker. There's a lot of hype around Docker, and that the, there's a lot of smart people behind the company. I mean, you've got people like James Turnbull, like jumping ship from Puppet Labs to to Docker. So there's something going on there. And uh, if you if you t- kind of take like a like if you don't go very deep, particularly at the beginning of sort of a hype cycle, you know, new solutions can appear to be a cure-all. And, and it's like, well, this new thing has come along. It's changed some things, which is for the good, right? Like, we're moving, we're moving to, like, a, a world where the thing that you deploy is the virtual machine. It is the container, right? Which I think is the right, I guess, artifact that we should be thinking about when we're deploying applications. Uh, but I, I guess, like, if you, if, imagine if you're, like, CTO of, you know, of a, of a medium-sized software company and you, like, hear about Docker, suddenly, like, att- attention is shifted from talking about Puppet and Chef all the time to talking about Docker, and it, and, and it does appear that, oh, there's this new way of doing things, it must completely replace them. And, and that was the discussion that we were having, and it's like, well, if you actually look at Docker, like, look at the Docker file, for example, you know, it's got, hey, it's got a run command, you can go and install some, uh, some packages, you know, you can say, hey, when the Docker image comes up, this service should start. 
And if you look at like Puppet and the way that Puppet works, you do the same thing, but you do it in a declarative way. And I think that that way has been proven. And I think the mistake, and I and, and I think it's probably a good thing that James uh, Turnbull has joined Docker because he could probably show them the light. Is that do- the Docker file is the the same style? It's it's essentially a shell script, which is what Puppet sort of. Re- Placed people building, and so so what I'm getting at is that in in Docker you no longer describe how you want your your image to look, how you want your virtual machine to look. You tell it what to install, like what to do, which is sort of like the antithesis to the the puppet way. So I I, I guess you know at the end of the day you've got all of these containers that are running on a physical machine or like within you know a machine that's hosted on a hypervisor, and something still needs to manage how those Docker machines are configured right so like who watches the watches if that makes any sense <laughs> so. yeah, yeah yeah well so what i guess what i'm asking is that in the demo that james turnbull gave at the conference and i'm trying to figure out if if this is just a good demo to give or if this is a workflow they would actually suggest he made change to the application code and then sent that docker image up to the docker share whatever pulled right. it back down but he didn't build an RPM package. He didn't, you know, what we currently do with, like, machines that are managed by Chef or Puppet will, you know, package a new version of the RPM, you know, use, use FPM and get a dev or an RPM or whatever. We'll put that in a package repo. Then we'll use an orchestration tool to, like, update our running images. That's, that's kind of a common use case. And it seems to me that one of the things he was saying is, like, actually, you can make all of your changes via Docker, via that top, you know, since Docker's a stack of container diffed images, you know, you'd start with your web server and then your, you know, uh, Rails libraries and then your gem files that you need, and the top would just be your application code. And by constantly deploying using Docker, that top last image, that's how you would deploy your application. Yeah. And that's I mean, my question, is that is that their workflow? Because that's a real departure from the Chef Puppet CF Engine-like compile a thing, take a package, and and that's too why it sounds like maybe EJ may be kind of confused because he's thinking about it like we commonly think about it, where you bake an AMI and you send it out. But it sounds like they don't want you to do that. Right, right, and you, the changes. I think it changes the semantics of how you're dealing with with the same problem. You're you're just answering it in a different way, and you you can you, it's it's one of those you can use Docker to complement your existing configuration management, or you can you know completely buy full into the the kind of Docker lifestyle, as it were. The Docker lifestyle. Yeah, and and just change and just change how just change how you're doing because there are there aren't efficiencies in every case. There are still cases. For example, I wouldn't want to run a production React cluster built on top of Docker. Like I want, you know, a full machine or a full, you know, I want a big, you know, big thing. But I could, in theory, if I was doing a, a test environment, have a single big machine and have several Docker containers, and each one looks like a completely different machine. You know, they can have different IPs and everything like that. But I can still get I can get the most out of the machine without having to virtualize everything. And so for me, that, that's where I see there's a huge amount of advantage in doing, especially with distributed services, where you're going to run a lot of little stuff. It, it's setting up these nice little convenient failure domains. So you, the, the failure domain is, is the container, not the full machine. So if something so, goes wonky, you, can, you could load balance between multiple Dockers on the same machine. There's just... There are all kinds of interesting operational possibilities that are uh, kind of can allowed. I, can yeah. I throw my rusty two cents after after this whole discussion? I feel like I, I feel like Docker is for the crowd that wants to hold on to their machine and just replace the app layer, but the underlying machine that's running the, the all the Docker you know cargo boxes or whatever you're calling them that doesn't change. 
right? For the we're crowd, that's like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna configure the machine one time and deploy instances of that machine, and then when we're done with that software, we're gonna throw out the whole machine. We don't we don't care about it, or we'll create more of them if we need them. One or the other. Well, right? that Does that make sense? It's baking AMIs and doing it that way, and that's a question. Well, right? I mean, I mean, if you were if you weren't if you weren't using AWS, you're using like OpenStack or VM. Like you could do this a million other ways with other virtualization tools and techniques, but the underlying principle is that you're either holding on to the machine and you're replacing your application layer or the, the Docker things. I don't, I don't know what they're called, containers. In my, in my yeah, mind, they're, they're the shipping containers, right? Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> or, or, or in the case of, like, the, the other way is, like, you throw away the whole thing, the whole machine. Like, you're not keeping that at all whatsoever. Uh, like, in the case of VMware, you're keeping the ESXi server, but the, the underlying VM that might be running your software, that whole VM gets chucked and replaced <laughs> with an entirely new mm. VM. And John, I think you were hitting the nail on the head just before when you mentioned workflows. Um, yeah. with, with all tools, right, with all tools, particularly new ones, and, and with Docker is very new, right, it takes a little while for the dust to settle and the, the good workflows to be kind of sorted out from the bad ones. And, and you, notice, you notice this with Git, like everyone, like when Git first got introduced and people were really getting into it, people were like doing all sorts of crazy things with Git and all kinds of different workflows. And then eventually, you know, some of those were disproven and we ended up with things like Git flow and, and there's a couple of other ones that have really seemed to be the way to use Git. And I imagine that's going to happen eventually for tools like Docker. So we're, we're still in this sort of like confused state where it's like, okay, we've been thinking about things in terms of like Puppet and Chef for a couple of years now. Everything's kind of been turned on its head and it's like, well, which thing is valuable? What's the right way to use the tool? I'm using Puppet and Chef in this way. Build me a bridge to Docker, right? Well, so uh, let, me, let, me ask, let me ask the panel this because the thing that I think I, I just want to call out because it seems like kind of the elephant in the room is that the, Docker sounds like it would be a great tool and part of a workflow for immutable infrastructure. So if you're, if you're deploying stuff to bare metal and not using containers for whatever reason. For a mutable, not an immutable, correct? No, no. So that doc is, is good for immutable infrastructure. Basically this idea that you deploy it and when you are done with it, you kill it. You know, the Netflix model where when if you have a problem with it you kill it and redeploy it you don't try to save state so you can do well the thing is you and and kind of back to the people are still defining workflows you can actually you can do both with doc there's not there's i mean they, you can have it be completely you could have it be mutable you can you know, you could have images you don't have necessarily have a golden image you can have a golden base and then you know, and add then chef and puppet your way to the rest of your well, environment. you can add you you can add you can no you can add you can add and subtract other Docker layers to you know so you so it can it can be dynamic. But it so seems like the whole the whole idea is that when you have to make a change then to something, you need to throw the running container that you're running away and no, you, you just layer you can, you can add another layer. But, but doesn't that still doesn't that still involve shutting down the container and starting a whole new one from scratch? Which is immutable infrastructure, right? I believe that's the way it's supposed to work. Because otherwise, how would you... You would have to make your apps be able to reload with the new infrastructure in it. And that just sounds like 
state management hell. Yeah. yeah. Or, or it seems like you're deploying, you deploy Chef and Puppet on your Docker machine, and then once you launch it, you would make those changes that way, which seems then you don't get all of the Docker workflow goodness. Like, I, this is a question, a general, like a question that, I, that as we're talking about, it seems to me there's two kind of elephants in the room. The first one is that Docker really is targeted towards an immutable Netflix-like infrastructure where if you have problems, you shoot the VM in the head and re- rebuild, or not rebuild, but redeploy the image with the fix, or, you know, or when you deploy new features, you basically move your infrastructure from the old VMs to the newer containers to the new ones. And the other one is that it seems like this is really good for service-oriented architectures. But if you've got some huge monolithic application that runs, it's less good. Is that right? That so, so I, I think I think that hitting on the, the service-oriented architecture, I think, really kind of nails it because it's it's a different. It, it, you're operating Docker from a different perspective. Typically, there's how you're dealing with machines. You're you're just focusing on the processes themselves, the singular process per container. So it just simplifies how you think of your stack, and that's okay. and I think for me that's that's a lot of the value that I see in it. It's you're thinking less about operating systems. Which is something I think that's good. Like no one yes. wants to care. No one wants to care about well, what to, version. To, to of a degree. I mean, there there's yeah. still all you know those of us who will still care about the bare metal and, and the OS. But this this gives you it's very very clean to to think about all the layers. And I think just it helps it helps for under. I think it can help understand a complex system, or it can help somebody like ramping up on a complex system. At the same time, you can do this the you know compl- you know how we're doing you know kind of a, what I, I don't know, a more traditional way. And still, you know, it's not that one is better or more efficient than the other. It just depends on what your focus is uh, is on managing. And I can see the value of Docker in that I don't have to, I don't have to manage OSs anymore. I just have these little lightweight images that I can push around. And I really like that. I really like that concept. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I use it a lot, but it's 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 conceptually a it can be a very convenient tool for the right environment. How do you mean you don't have to manage OSs anymore? You still have to worry about. Uh, whatever your base um, LXC install, like I mean, are you assuming that once we well, get to kernel, well, what I was going to say was, are you assuming that once we get to kernel, whatever 5.0, that at that point I can still throw what is it, Docker images or containers around? I mean, I mean that's so that's I mean the idea is that this would be portable between whatever kernel versions support LXC, assuming they're not. Do- I mean, you have the same problem with with certain zones not being able to be passed around with different Solaris kernel versions, but. The idea being that I can I can easily all I need is a kernel. I don't need to care about an entire OS. All I need is that's why that's why CoreOS kind of factors in heavily to Docker use. It's basically just just a kernel, and that's and that's kind of the, so I don't really care even about the underlying OS. I just I just care that it is a functioning Linux kernel, and then these little I guess you, you can, I think of the Docker things as little user land stacks. And I have to, I, or at least I can care less about the semantics of each operating system and just make a thing that runs a process. Yeah, Yusuf, this this makes sense to me in the use case where you're a developer and you're writing some, you know, Ruby or Django thing or maybe a Java service or something like that, and you don't really give a crap about what version of OpenSSL is running on the machine. You don't care. I mean, you care that the services you need are provided, but you don't want to have to care about that. You want the tools team to care about that. 
So the point so being, you're talking about PaaS, though. I mean, platform as a service. No, no, no. What I'm talking about is, is there is a set of configuration management tasks for the application that somebody has to be responsible for. And when I say configuration management, I mean the older school definition, not Puppet and Chef. I mean, like, sure. what the, what are the dependencies of our application that require for things to to work? And most developers traditionally don't care about that stuff, and they're and they're actually not very good at managing that. And what I mean, I don't mean that as a slight. What I mean is. I think Seth, you and I as build engineers have, have had to do third-party dependency cleanup projects that are huge. And so my point is it's, it's, a, it's an area that they just want to work on their code and their features. They don't want to think about where all these libraries and things comes from. If you can isolate the management of that task into someone who they are responsible for the Docker containers and that stack and basically telling the team, okay, you don't have to worry about anything but your feature, but from you know the first five containers that you've stacked on with the Docker that have the base OS and the version of Apache and all that kind of stuff, this is what you're using. This is what we're using this week, everyone. Use this. So they don't have to yeah. care as long as mm -hmm. it works. And, and, and I, that's the benefit where you don't it, you don't have to be like okay you have to use Ubuntu 13 this version but then you have to get these extra three packages and by the way we have to do this other package and some developers like I don't give a shit about having to do that I'm going to just check the shared objects into source control and that'll somehow get rolled into the package and then you are pulling your hair out I like the definition that Docker uses in, in one of their presentations where you think of the, the containers as just run times for your app and I really like that definition it's you're not when I say you're not thinking about the OS, you're just like this is a this is a this is the environment. This is right. the runtime. It's, for it's my like it's like an iPhone. It's like if if I can build it on, on no seriously, like if, yeah, yeah. if I can build it on Xcode with this SDK, then it's gonna work on mm. the iPhone that I run it on. Sort of. James, I did want to ask you something. So mm. you said in your tweet, you said you believed that Chef and Puppet are at least complementary with Docker. I wanted to ask. So. What do you think a workflow would be when you have an application, like, if they are truly complementary, then it seems to me that, like, it makes a lot of sense that you might use, you know, Chef or Puppet to create your Docker images and use those in a dev test way. And then, like, the situation that EJ is running into where you want to bake a AMIs or you want to do something different in production, but you want to make sure the configuration is at least as close as you can get it on a day-to-day -day dev and test basis, uh, is that kind of what how you believe they're complementary or like? No, it, it really feels like that. As, as much as I love I love Docker um, right now, the way, the way that it is, I think that I think that it's it, it's half a product, right? At the moment, mm. where, where I really see like the configuration management coming back in is, is back to what I said before about the Docker file. The Docker file is a step backward. We are, we are back to you know shell scripts that go and install all the right things. Sure, you can spin up that process. It can be really quick, like that inner loop where you go, all right, I want to make a change to this dependency, and then you can rebuild that image pretty quickly. But I, I still think you're still going to have to manage the complexity or the potential complexity of what is actually going inside the Docker image. Right, mm -hmm. and that that Docker file that you've got, it, it it won't scale, right? Like if you're going to do something like reasonably complex in there, like you're setting up a full, imagine like uh, you're trying to run like WebSphere in there or something like that, right? Like it, when, when we're talking about like real enterprise use cases, like they've got big heavy apps that have like multiple dependencies, they all need to go onto that Docker that Docker image. That's a solved problem. That puppet 
Puppet right. Chef can do that really well for you today. A shell script can't. And that's what the Docker file really is. It's a shell script. And it gladdens my heart to see somebody like James Turnbull, obviously, been running the show over at Puppet Labs since, like, the early days and, and really pushing that forward. He comes with the background of, like, this configuration management is the way to do those sorts of things. And I, I, I do believe, if I, like, look into my crystal ball, that we'll see something like that in Docker eventually. I mean, it's, it's early days. So you um, think, like, integration? Like a, like a kind of integration where you can say the Docker file, hey, run this, you know, point it to, to like, a chef run list and and it'll if you've got that in your you know uh, one of your docker containers it'll know to just call it and run it that correct. like that's the integration okay all right yeah correct and, and i mean if you look at all of these tools right like we're in a we're in a huge huge uh, like point of change like in, it's like a in tool explosion operation. yeah a tool explosion right and yeah. it's going to take a little while for the dust to settle and the right things to like the right I guess it goes for all technologies. Like you look at the, uh, I hate using the Apple example, but you look at the iPhone, right? And the iPhone, when it came out, was like, you know, people, like, it had that instant appeal. But really, uh, underneath, it wasn't anything new. Like, people had the BlackBerry where you could get email. People had a web browser in their Nokia feature phone. There were touch screens, you know, like, but it was the, the combination of those individual features which ended up making the kind of, like, set the bar, I guess, for, like, the final solution. And then now you have your Samsungs and your LGs producing very similar phones. What's interesting about that example, and I, and I totally agree with you, what's interesting about that example, though, is the reason people loved the iPhone is part, you know, showmanship on Steve Jobs' part, I think. But, but when they, they, they had a very emotional, visceral connection to the device, and I do believe that when you see this workflow that kind of fits in with the Git commands which you're kind of used to, it resonates for certain types, uh, it resonates with certain developers for ter- certain types of applications. And that's where they get that warm, fuzzy feeling that we, we've all, we, we've been able to do this stuff before with tools like, you know, Chef and Puppet and CF Engine and stuff, but it's that emotional connection, kind of like Git made, that made it, developers just want it no matter what. Yeah, I think, like, I think yeah. all of this technology makes more sense when you think it, like, when you don't look at, like, how it is today, but like, you kind of squint your eyes and look into that crystal ball <laughs> and you imagine what it's going to be like tomorrow. And um, a good example that I have when I'm explaining sort of, like, to, to, to people around Atlassian about, like, how, like, where Docker could be going in the future, and I, I think, uh, EJ, you were, like, talking about this Amazon EC2 use case, and it's going, well, Docker really doesn't make sense in my world, Right. But if you can imagine like a, fu- uh, a future Amazon Web Services or Google Compute Cloud where you have a Git repository and inside your Git repository is all your Docker config and you Git push uh, your Docker image to Amazon or to Google Compute Cloud and then uh, it just runs that configuration for you, right? Because Absolute, they've got the base absolutely OS. It's Heroku infrastructure. Yeah, you yeah, totally. In terms of that, and that, and that's the real shift, right? What Heroku gave us for running individual web apps, Docker will give us that for the full stack, and uh, you'll be cloud independent, right? So you can go, you can, you can push to Docker, you, you can push a Docker image to Google, you can push a Docker image to Amazon, you can push, um, push one to uh, what's the new one? DigitalOcean or something DigitalOcean, like that. Yeah, like yeah. they're a new up, up and comer. And you yeah. can see it all in their roadmaps. Like this week, there's been a whole bunch of announcements in for, around Amazon and Google Cloud, and they're dropping the price of things. Like in order to make all of that infrastructure even cheaper, they're going to have to move away from Zen-like virtualization, which is what I believe Amazon used today, and mm-hmm. move to something a little bit more like Docker, where. Well, hang on, hang on a sec, then. So, like, how does something yeah. like Elastic 
Elastic Beanstalk, where it's just like, you don't even worry about that. You just shove up your war file. Right? Isn't that even like even better than that? Like you don't even have to worry about Docker. You're just like, here's my WAR file. Well, if if, if that if that works for your your kind of environment, yeah, yeah I think, sure. Yeah, yeah, I think totally. Um, but it if is, you need to manage more of the stack, yeah. it gives right. it gives you a nice in between. You can manage the stack as it, as fully or as 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 lightly as you want. Sure. And that's I think so the, the, the flexibility. If you're pushing like the Docker, you're pushing your app layer, not your entire like. OS and machine and everything else, right? Every so here's the thing: every moderately complicated know. Java application I've ever seen, actually, at some point has JNI calls out to some platform library that does something they need done really fast in C++, and then suddenly it's like those services don't support that because you know you have to run in actual process space, uh, and you have to link against things that that matter. So you have to control the stack to do that. So. Anyway, this is uh, kind of, as you pointed out, James, a fascinating area that's uh, changing and developing very quickly. We'd be curious what uh, what users think, uh, what workflows and use cases you've seen for Docker. Uh, are you mixing Chef and Puppet into that mix or Ansible, CF Engine, any of those tools? Um, are you taking the Docker lifestyle, as Seth put it, and going full <laughs> hog on that? Let us know your thoughts at uh, Ship Show Podcast on Twitter and crew at theshipshow.com. James, thanks for joining us again. We really appreciate uh, your insight on, on the matter, and hopefully you can come back. Maybe we can debate it again in a few months after some of this stuff uh, settles down. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, been a pleasure, and it always has been. We'll be back in a moment here on The Ship Show. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, Tooltip Central, we keep doing them because we keep having them. And there was a great uh, website that was going around the Twitter sphere. If Git is still confusing to you, you are not alone. There is a new website called uh, Visualizing Git Concepts with D3. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. It has basically your basic set of commands, your uh, commands to undo things, commands to combine branches, uh, and then remote commands. The thing I like about it, when you click on the link, you can actually type the Git command. It'll show you the graphical representation of what's going on in real time, which is super spiffy. Seth, you had said that you ran into this earlier this week on the Twitter sphere as well. Yeah, and it's I just it's really nice because as there's I actually was talking about this with some some friends who I, I work with and we're you know, every developer owes it to themselves to really understand their re- revision control, and Git isn't always the most intuitive, especially, you know, I, I feel like I was spoiled with the Perforce background. So some of the things that Git did, I was like, I don't really understand those, and this really, really helps. I mean, if you didn't make it through, like, the Git basics, or you didn't, like, read, like, pro-Git, um, this is a great visual tool to just really help you, you know, you can look at a branch or, like, a repo of your own and then kind of apply these, like, test lessons, and I don't know. It's it's, it's very, very useful. I, I think one of the things that's most difficult about Git is that its conceptual model is so very different from Subversion and Perforce and these other systems, and I know people are like, well, yeah, that's great, and that's why we like it, and that's fine, but I think a lot of people that are coming from those systems don't really care about version control. I mean, they understand it's important, but they don't care about all the semantics, like, like Sasha always talks about, like, she falls asleep when I start talking about 
this stuff. And I understand <laughs> that. I, I think the visual representation of what's actually going on is very useful, and this helps with that. It, it helps you clarify your mental model. So right, and you don't have to, and you don't have to set up because for a lot of people, even just setting up a test Git repo just to learn Git is kind of a it, it's it's enough of a I guess an obstacle that they don't even they don't even try to go through the examples, and this just gives you a nice playground in in their little web interface, and you can just kind of really get an idea of how it works without having to put any data anywhere. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what's that website where you can like type in JS commands and it'll it'll like oh like uh, uh like JS lint yeah or the, there's also a CSS one it reminds mm-hmm. me a yeah. lot of that yeah. Well, yeah you can just use you can just do it in in the browser um, yeah yeah sorry I'm not thinking, JS not th- I'm not thinking it's not JS lint but it's a Oh, it's like a J. You can just paste JavaScript in there and it validates. Yeah, it I, I can't. I can't remember it either. I'm sure somebody will tweet us with the actual answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, so as we mentioned, diverse chef conf proposals. Uh, get those sent off by again uh, April fifth. Um, and then, of course, we'll link to some of the other upcoming conferences. Uh, I know that uh, the Velocity call for papers is actually closing, I think, the day this is going to ship. So uh, get those in if you're planning on doing that. And, of course, we'll just put up the regular links we put up. You can peruse them and see all the un- upcoming activities and events. So from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From northern Massachusetts, this is EJ signing off. And from Seattle, this is Seth signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks.